0: Today we have for you a brand new episode just come out from under the 60-day embargo period during which our participating newspapers have exclusive rights. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy the show. This story was first published on July 1st of 2023 under the headline, Man Found America's Largest Meteorite on His Neighbor's Land. Here we go. It was getting towards the end of the summer of 1902, and Westland resident Ellis Hughes was getting worried. His neighbor, William Dale, had traveled back to eastern Oregon to sell some land he owned there. With the proceeds, Dale and Hughes planned to buy a piece of property next to the Hughes farm. The property belonged to the Oregon Iron and Steel Company, which wasn't really doing anything with it, and which Hughes was pretty sure it would be happy to sell. Unless, of course, they found out, why he wanted to buy it, because earlier in the summer, while trespassing on it, Hughes had stumbled across the biggest meteorite that has ever been found on American soil before or since, lying half buried in a remote and thickly forested part of it. One imagines him gnawing at his fingernails, waiting to hear back from Dale, hoping it would happen before the property owner got wise or someone else found the meteorite. He'd piled brush over it, but there was only so much you could do to hide a 16-ton hunk of extraterrestrial nickel iron. Sooner or later, someone would spot it, and his chance to grab it would be lost. Finally, realizing that Dale was not coming back, he was decided on another solution. Theft. He would simply... So simple. Load the 31,000-pound meteorite onto a wagon in the middle of the night and drag it three-quarters of a mile onto his property, where he would discover it later. Believe it or not, this harebrained scheme probably would have worked if Hughes had just kept his mouth shut a little longer. The meteorite. Today it's known as the Willamette meteorite. It's named after the little town close by the Hughes farm of Willamette, which has subsequently become a neighborhood of West Lynn. When the Willamette meteorite struck the Earth, it almost certainly did not land anywhere near where Hughes found it. A rock that big hitting anywhere around West Lynn would have buried itself to bedrock in the deep Willamette Valley topsoil never to be seen again. Scientists believe it came down actually somewhere in Montana or northern Idaho during the last ice age and embedded itself in a glacier. Then, at the end of the Ice Age, the glacier melted, calving off icebergs into the massive inland sea that was glacial Lake Missoula, which, of course, torrentially drained, icebergs and all, down the Columbia River during the Missoula floods. The theory is that an iceberg containing the meteorite floated to what's now West Lynn before melting and depositing its load gently on the ground there. And there it sat. Native Americans, when they found it, recognized it as special— They gave it a name, Tamanuos, translated as Visitor from the Moon, and they dipped their arrowheads in the rainwater that collected in its pockets. Hughes was out cutting firewood when he noticed it, an oddly shaped boulder, oddly colored like rusty iron. And he wondered, could it be a piece of iron ore? He consulted his neighbor, William Dale, who came over with a rock hammer and tapped on the strange rock. And instead of the expected rocky chup sound, the hammer rang with a bell-like ting on impact. Dale and Hughes looked at each other. This wasn't iron ore. This was straight-up iron. And the only way iron appears naturally on the surface of the Earth in pure, if rusty, form is when it falls from the sky. To be more precise, the meteorite is 91.65% iron, 7.88% nickel, and 0.21% cobalt and 0.09% phosphorus. Anyway, that is how Ellis Hughes learned that there was a massive, priceless visitor from outer space parked on his neighbor's land. (laughs) So the plan to steal the meteorite kicked off with Hughes and his wife and stepson cutting a wagon road through the woods to the site from their home. Next, Hughes built a super heavy-duty wheeled platform to put the meteorite on. If you look look up pictures of this platform this wagon thing on the Internet, uh, you can find them. It really looks like something out of the Flintstones. It's got heavy wooden wheels like the stone ones on the Flintstone mobile. But apparently it got the job done. He also built a super-heavy-duty capstan winch for his horse to drive. So using the winch, with the help of his wife and stepson, and, of course, the horse, he managed to roll this massive thing onto the platform. And then, anchoring the winch to a big tree in the general direction of home, he started using it to slowly drag the wagon through the woods. Progress was excruciatingly slow. For days on end, this poor horse walked in circles around the capstan wheel, winding a cable around a spindle and dragging the platform inch by inch along the road. The best day's progress was 150 feet. Later in the summer, unseasonable heavy rains turned the wagon road into a mud bog, and progress slowed to just a few feet per day. Finally, they, they had to stop and put down planks for the cart to run on. But finally, three months after they started, the Hughes family had their stolen meteorite safe and sound on their own land. Well, this was the point at which a wiser man would have spent the winter carefully and painstakingly repairing the damage to the neighbor's land, filling in the crater out of which the meteor had been dug, maybe even planting some small trees and shrubs in the wagon path. After a year's wait, you know, with some careful cultivation, it would have gone a long way towards making a casual observer think that nothing had happened there. But, of course, that is not what Ellis Hughes did. Instead, he built a gazebo over the meteorite and started charging people 25 cents a head, which is about $9 in modern money, to come and see it. Well, the meteorite was a big sensation, and for a few weeks it was the talk of the town. It was, as Hughes rightly asserted, the biggest meteorite ever found in the United States, and at the time, the third biggest in the world. Very soon, though, rumors started to circulate that Hughes had not found the meteorite on his own land. When these rumors reached the ears of the Oregon and Iron and Steel people, they apparently went into the woods to look for evidence and, and found it. They started off, after that, by offering to buy it from Hughes for $50, basically to reimburse him for the expense of dragging it out of the woods. Hughes, though, said no. So the company sued him, demanding the return of the meteorite. In court, Hughes argued that the meteorite was not real estate. It didn't belong to the land. It was personal property belonging to the Native Americans. Presumably at this point he was working with the Indians because, um, and, and probably had made some sort of deal with them, because two tribal leaders from the Clackamas Indians testified on his behalf. The meteorite, they told the judge, was theirs. It was a holy object belonging to the Clackamas people. It was a surprisingly plausible argument. In a modern court of law, it probably would have been a no-brainer. After all, if the president of Oregon Iron and Steel left his briefcase behind after a visit to a Clackamas village, they wouldn't be allowed to keep it based on a claim to have found it on their land. But that wasn't the way it worked in 1903. The court promptly awarded the disputed meteorite to Oregon Iron and Steel, and when Hughes and the tribe appealed to the state Supreme Court, the decision was affirmed. So by this time, it was almost time for the 1905 Lewis and Clark Centennial Exposition, the huge World's Fair in Portland. And the victorious company, feeling probably some pressure from the tribe, announced that the meteorite would remain in Oregon forever and prominently featured the big space rock at the the exposition. But apparently by remain in Oregon forever, what they actually meant was, remain in Oregon until wealthy philanthropist Sarah Dodge offers to buy it for the American Museum of Natural History in New York City for $20,600, at which point they apparently changed their mind and took the money. It's kind of surprising because $20,600 wasn't really all that much money in the context of something like this. It was only about six dollars or $700,000 worth in modern currency. Anyway, the Willamette meteorite has remained on display in the museum in New York City ever since. There are two replicas of it, one at the United Methodist Church in West Lynn, near where it was found, and the other outside the University of Oregon's Museum of Natural and Cultural History in Eugene. The one at West Lynn is very weathered and, and, and doesn't really look very much like the meteorite anymore. But the Museum of Natural and Cultural History's replica is good. However, Oregonians who want to see the real thing will have to travel to New York to do it. In 1990, local Indian tribes sued for the return of the meteorite. But ten years later, they came to an agreement with the museum that lets them come and visit the meteorite and hold private ceremonies around it whenever they want to. The agreement also stipulates that if the museum ever takes it off permanent display, the tribes will get it back. And everyone seems to have been happy with this compromise. In 2007, a bill got introduced in the Oregon House of Representatives demanding its return, and the tribes released a statement really kind of kneecapping the effort. They said they were happy with the existing arrangement and did not support the bill, and that no one had talked to them before demanding the rock's return. So, as Willamette Week put it in an editorial that year, neither the bill nor the 16-ton meteorite went anywhere. Other Oregon meteorites... (laughs) Let's talk about those now. The Willamette meteorite is the most famous heavenly body to end up in Oregon, but it is far from the only one. Here are some of the others Sam's Valley meteorite, Jackson County, 1880s and 1890s. The area of Sam's Valley, about 10 miles north of Medford, apparently was the target of a meteorite that broke up on entry into the atmosphere there have been roughly half a dozen pieces of it found over the years, including three found in the 1880s by a gold panner, a 15-pound metallic lunker found in 1894, and a 2.6-pound piece acquired by the American Museum of Natural History in 1938. The big Sam's Valley chunk, the 15-pounder, got sold to a commercial dealer which cut it into bits to sell to museums and private collectors. The piece found in 1938 got forwarded to University of Oregon astronomer J.H. Pruitt, who agreed to slice the thing up in exchange for a one-pound piece. He did this, or rather his friend C.A. Coulter and Coulter's teenage son Donald did, by hand, by the way. It took them 11 hours and 18 hacksaw blades. And his one-pound piece is now on display at the Oregon Museum of Natural History in Eugene. Klamath Falls Meteorite, Klamath County, 1952. This meteorite was found somewhere in Klamath County, and it was a very large one, 38 pounds. The person who found it brought it to a meteorite expert and dropped it off for testing, but then never returned to pick it up, so its origins are kind of shrouded in mystery. It got acquired later by the University of New Mexico and subsequently was cut up so that pieces could be sold to private collectors and put on display in other museums. Salem Meteorite, Marion County, 1981 A little after 1 a.m. on May 13, 1981, Marion County Deputy Sheriff James Price was sitting on the curb in front of his residence talking with another deputy when both men heard what sounded like a shower of gravel hitting the roof. They investigated using their flashlights and eventually found a still warm piece of stony meteorite that had hit the ground within 10 feet of them. The meteorite fragments were tested to confirm that they were of extraterrestrial origin and not just rocks from some neighbor kid's slingshot. They turned out to be the real deal, and Deputy Price was no doubt happy to add them to his rock collection. Morrow County Meteorite, 1999. Washington residents Donald and Debbie Wesson were driving home from a visit in north central Oregon when they saw a particularly interesting rock lying in the ditch. It was about 40 pounds, uniquely shaped, as if it had been partly melted. On one side, a piece had been torn away, probably by a farmer's plow. Donald picked it up and took it home to add to his rock garden, where it remained for the next eight years. Then, one day, Donald watched a TV program about meteorites, and it started him wondering if that weird rock they'd picked up in Oregon might be one. Asking around, he was directed to Dr. Dick Pugh at Portland State University who, with the help of his colleagues at PSU's Cascadia Meteorite Laboratory, was able to confirm it was a meteorite. As meteorites go, the rock is a pretty common type, but there are a few things about it that are unusual, according to Dr. Melinda Hudson, curator of the meteorite lab. It has beautiful shock veins and glass, caused by a major collision in space, she said in a 2010 press release, and the cone shape of the meteorite is very nice for such a large specimen. Fitzwater Pass, Lake County, 1976. In the summer of 76, Lakeview rockhound Paul Albertson was out hunting for agate and jasper with his high school teacher, James Bleakney, when he found a strangely heavy teardrop-shaped piece of metal the size of his thumb. Albertson took the 2.3-ounce chunk to his local rock shop, where the staff members were stumped but told him it was probably a piece of nickel ore. Albertson took it home and stashed it in a coffee can with some other interesting rocks, and there it remained until one day Dr. Pugh, remember him, of the Cascade Meteorite Lab, came to the Lakeview Public Library and gave a lecture about meteorites, and Albertson attended it. Remembering the weird bit of quote-unquote nickel ore he'd found when he was in high school, he dug it out of the can and brought it along with him. Must have suspected maybe it was a meteorite. Dr. Pugh sent it in for analysis, which revealed that it was indeed a very rare IIIF iron meteorite. South Slough Meteorite, Coos County, 1890. Okay, this meteorite, if it existed, has been lost. It would be very difficult to lose a meteorite this big, though. The description that has come down to us is of a piece of space rock roughly 40 times bigger than Namibia's Hoba meteorite, which is the world's largest authenticated meteorite. The story comes to us from Pioneer History of Coos and Curry Counties, a book by O. Dodge published in 1898 by the Capitol Press in Salem. It's probably best, as one of Raymond Chandler's hard-boiled detective protagonists once put it, to take it straight from the neck. Quote, One of the largest meteorites on record fell on the head of South Slough, Coos County, January 17, 1890, at 11 o'clock at night, knocking a hole in the hill 30 feet across. Dodge writes, It came from the northwest and lighted up the heavens in fine style. A report as a thunder awoke people for many miles around. It was plainly heard at Coquille City. Excavations reveal a chunk of lava 22 feet across that resembles slag from an iron furnace. In the absence of any other information about this enormous meteorite, and in consideration of the fact that a meteorite that big would be extremely unlikely to survive the thermal shock of entering Earth's atmosphere without scattering and shattering into a shower of smaller fragments, scientists generally consider the South Slough meteorite to be either wildly exaggerated or just simply fictional. Molino meteorite, Clackamas County, 1927. In the story of the South Slough meteorite, there is a story but no meteorite. The Molino meteorite has the opposite problem. It's an existing, very small, chondrite, which is, means stony and not metallic, chondrite meteorite in the U.S. National Museum, which the label says fell on May 24, 1927, near Molino, a tiny community about halfway between Oregon City and Molala on Highway 213. The problem is, according to geologist George Musto, there's just no evidence in contemporary newspaper reports or other correspondence of any meteorite falling there. So, what's the story? Did the meteorite actually fall in Milano, and did somebody box it up and ship it to the museum with a note saying, hey, you might want to have this in your collection, without saying a word to the local media or the neighbors? Now, this does seem like the most likely explanation, but we'll probably never really know, and it may actually be a hoax. Port Orford Meteorite, 1856. Yes, you knew I was going to get to this one. As the kids say nowadays on their YouTube channels, this is the one that's going to really light the fires in the comments below. But the scientific consensus on this one is pretty clear. The Port Orford Meteorite was a hoax, a desperate play by a desperate explorer facing financial ruin and a total loss of reputation, grasping at straws to save himself. The story, or rather the most likely story, is this. It's 1858. Explorer John Evans is on a sailing ship or steamer on his way home from an expedition to Oregon for a government-funded geological survey. He's coming home to face some serious music. He's overspent his budget. He will be expected to make up the shortfall from his personal resources, and he doesn't have enough personal resources to cover them. The trip home for Evans is not around the Horn. His ship stops at the Isthmus of Panama, and the passengers disembark and take a short overland journey to the other side for the second leg of their voyage. Along that route, Evans comes across a vendor selling pieces of a palisite meteorite, the Imalac meteorite, discovered about 30 years earlier in the Atacama Desert in Chile. Palisite is the most valuable kind of meteorite. Palisite is the substance that forms right at the borderline between the nickel-iron core and the rocky chondrite mantle of a small planet or large asteroid. When that heavenly body is blown apart by a meteor strike or whatever, the chunks that result can be rocks, metals, or pallasite. And pallasite is by far the rarest of the three. A very large pallasite meteorite would be worth huge money— Evans knows this. So he buys this little three-quarter-ounce chunk of Imalac meteorite and spends the rest of his journey concocting a story about it, how he found a huge 11-ton meteorite half buried in the side of a hill that he calls Bald Mountain, about 40 miles inland from Port Orford, how he cut the specimen off because it looked interesting and only later learned that it was a million-dollar visitor from space, and how he would really like the government to finance a return trip so he could go and get it and retrieve it for posterity. All of which is well on its way to working great when the Civil War breaks out. Suddenly, the government is no longer very interested in rock collecting. Well, okay, is that what happened? Probably but we'll never know, because Evans died of pneumonia the day after the war started. Also, there are some weird stories out there that hint at the possibility that the Port Orford meteorite may have been a real item. Most notably, a nickel miner named Bob Harrison in 1937 claimed the meteorite was on his claim and that the nickel he'd been mining was from the strike, chunks that had broken off the palisite in an airburst. Harrison, though, disappeared from view after making this claim, and nobody knows what happened to him, so yeah. The Port Orford meteorite is a magnificent antebellum hoax, or maybe that's just what whoever found it wants you to think. Either way, it is a deliciously fun South Coast legend. Key sources in this story have included works by George E. Musto, Cordelia Backer-Señor, and the faculty and staff at the Cascade Meteorite Laboratory at Portland State University. So, okay, everybody, that is our show for today. Thanks again for listening. I sure hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. Check out our hub page at offbeatoregon.com to explore all the other things we do or to find the full citations and visuals that go with today's show. If you haven't yet, and if you enjoy this podcast, you should totally check out my friend Marcus's uh, new podcast. It's new as the time of this recording. It might not be new by the time it publishes, but it's called Welcome to Oregon. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts and you know, check it out. If you like my podcast, you will probably like Marcus's. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details of that, see offbeatoregon.com slash cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Offbeat organ History episodes come out once per weekday, usually around 6 a.m., so it won't be long before the next episode is on your device and ready for you to queue up and enjoy. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day and the weekend with good stuff. Bye now.